1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business App. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Welcome to the Thursday edition of Bloomberg's
2: Balance of Power. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, where we start today with our focus on the Pentagon, a late scheduled news conference by the Secretary of State. Had a lot of folks thinking we were gonna hear about an authorization for a military strike, knowing that the Pentagon has been formulating plans for a response uh, to the deadly attacks on U.S. troops in Jordan just days ago. There was some insight brought by the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, his first time standing in front of cameras uh, since coming back from the hospital after a lengthy stay, of course, surgery for prostate cancer. And he likely made more news talking about the way that was handled than anything else. Lloyd Austin, again, holding forth with reporters. And we want to bring in, Uh, Nick Wadhams, who of course runs our national security team here at Bloomberg. It's good to see you, Nick. The the impact of this news conference on his tenure, he says he was not prepared to resign, but he apologized to the American people and to the president of the United States. Did he just put this behind him?
3: I think he has now put this uh, very much to bed. It was an interesting press conference because everybody had really been waiting for uh, sort of proof of life, if you will, him coming out and just saying, listen, I screwed up. I mean, it was so obvious what happened here. He he went, he was hospitalized, he had prostate cancer surgery, he didn't tell the president about that. Mm -hmm. He was then hospitalized for complications, didn't tell anybody about that for five days. Uh, and then he was hospitalized for two weeks. So this is a big deal. I mean, if you if you had a subordinate in, in the military who hid from his superiors that he was being hospitalized for, yeah. uh, he was in the ICU, uh, you'd get fired for that. And he was actually asked that very question, you know, uh, and what would your response be? And his, his response, I mean, he was in full groveling mode, basically, mm, listen, yeah. I screwed up, I apologize directly to the president, but he had no intention of resigning. And then, as you mentioned, you've got all the, the potential for, for strikes against Iran, uh, Syria, Iraq. Uh, so, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a a clever pivot in a way because he's saying, listen, I screwed up. But by the way, look at all this really important stuff that we have to do right now. Yes. Uh, and, and he's signaling he's very much going to be in control of that response.
2: Interesting opportunity, I guess, to address uh, the news at hand and also maybe try to get around what was – a bit of a scandal, uh, if we can call it that. Certainly a controversy surrounding the secretary. In terms of what we learned, very little about uh, apparently imminent strikes against Iranian proxies, if not Iran itself. The strike will be multi-tiered, he said, echoing what we've heard from John Kirby so far.
3: Right. So I think what you're, um, what you're seeing is this administration signaling we may get action imminently, but it's not going to be the last of it. Um, we're still trying to frankly, sort of puzzle through this strategy, because they are essentially telegraphing to Iran and all these groups over there that this is coming. And so why is that? You know, there has been a suggestion out there that uh, it's uh, part of some sort of back channeling with Iran. um, But, uh, you know, it is an interesting strategy. He said, you know, the enemy is not Uh, prone to taking one-and-done sort of actions, and uh, neither am I, and Mm -hmm. I also have a lot... my, My guns are a lot more powerful than theirs are, basically. So he's he's sort of suggesting, look, this is this is coming. And uh, what you see in the next days uh, is not going to be the last uh, word on this from President Biden.
2: Uh, Are we surprised he wasn't announcing a strike? Do you have any sense of timeline? What you're hearing?
3: Well, you know, generally speaking, when they do these strikes, they tend to do them at night uh, in the target area. Mm -hmm. So that's evening our time. Um, At least that's what happened when they struck Yemen when they struck the Houthis in Yemen. So you would anticipate that it would happen in the nighttime. I mean, everybody is just on high alert. We had some indications that it would happen last night that didn't pan out. But I I think what what they're signaling very clearly is there will be some sort of strikes. There's a CBS News report today saying in Iraq and Syria, uh, Iranian assets in Iraq and Syria. Uh, Very unlikely that they would do strikes on Iran itself for fear of provoking that wider war they say they want to avoid. I know your team is awfully busy right now, and appreciate your coming to talk to us,
2: as always. Nick Wadhams with us here on Bloomberg, who runs our national security coverage here in Bloomberg's Washington Bureau. Uh, More on the CBS News report that Nick mentions, because this is the most information that we've seen so far, where officials are confirming, as I read uh, to the news organization, that plans have been approved for a series of strikes over a number of days against targets. Remember this multi-tiered approach the Secretary was talking about. They include Iranian personnel and facilities inside Iraq and Syria. This, of course, following the attacks uh, over the weekend in Jordan that claimed the lives of three U.S. troops. We add the voice now of Holly Dagris of the Atlantic Council, runs the Middle East programs uh, program where she is a uh, senior fellow. And it's great to see you, Holly. Welcome to the table and for being with us today on Bloomberg. Um, I'm not sure your thoughts. You watched the secretary today at the Pentagon. Did we did we learn enough on an official level about what's happening here? And how come I'm reading battle plans in CBS News?
4: I mean, I think there was more focus on um, the secretary's health. It, there sure was. Then there was actually on the recent events. Was of the that the real week. purpose
2: of this news conference then?
4: I I felt like it was so given that that was most of where the conversation was, was addressing that and the status of his um, administration at um, the Pentagon but just uh, um, unpacking a bit of what you said about the CBS CBS News um, report I think there was a lot of frustration with why is this so publicized that the United States wants to hit back um, these Iran Shia militias in Iraq and Syria and so publicly and even talking about weather being an issue and I think that the frustration is, well, not just is this so public, but the fact that we're also hearing reports that IRGC top advisors in Syria are actually leaving the country. Hmm.
2: Uh, Are we telegraphing plans for a reason? Is there a strategy behind this or is, is there just news leaking out of the Pentagon?
4: Um, that that is a very um, interesting question you asked. I, I think um, definitely we have to remember that the the worry is this becoming an escalation that yeah. could potentially lead to an all-out war since the October 7th mm-hmm. um, attack by Hamas, um, the terrorist group. Um, and so I, I think you're getting a mix of both that this is deterrence. hey're this is what we're going to do. Do not escalate. And you're also hearing from Qatayab Hezbollah, the Iran backed Shia militia that um, has been more or less seen as responsible for um, the killing of three U.S. service members in northeastern Syria, saying, well, Mm. we're going to reduce our presence. We're not going to be attacking U.S. forces in the region. Mm -hmm. So I I, I think it's um, a two-way messaging going on right now.
2: We've heard uh, that this was the Islamic resistance in Iraq responsible for the attack in Jordan, uh, at least according to reports here. Give us a sense. You're an expert on these so-called proxy groups what are these relationships like are these wholly owned subsidiaries are they loosely connected to tehran how does this work how does this network happen
4: so the islamic resistance of iraq is a new umbrella group but it essentially is made up of iran bakshia militias that we've known prior including Kataib hezbollah mm-hmm. um these groups are trained and armed by iran they get their money um, they do have their own agency to an extent um, So, whether Iran gave that um, exact order to kill three U.S. service members is unclear, but... um, The president,
2: though, says they supplied the weapons. We can take that as a point of fact.
4: Absolutely. And that's where I was saying that they do train and Mm -hmm. arm them. So, Mm. I I think by proxy, it is in the hands of the Islamic Republic that they had a role in this. Mm. Um, I I think, well, not that I think, but the fact is that their modus operandi is that they want U.S. forces out of the region and they want the destruction of Israel. And so this attack on Sunday was part of that calculation Mm -hmm. that if they push the United States enough on several fronts, which is attacking our troops and bases, that will withdraw from the region. Uh
2: This was seen as a win to try to get the U.S. to retaliate from their view. Are they in constant communication uh, with their organizers, if I can use that that term, in Iran? Or do these groups sever ties and act on their own once they're trained and armed?
4: Well, they definitely um, have visits from the IRGC Road force commander, uh-huh. and they do interact with Tehran. They're part of something even wider called the resistance access, which is Iran's proxies in the region. So whether it's um, the Houthi rebels in Yemen, Lebanese Hezbollah, mm-hmm. Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and the Gaza Strip, um, and, of course, the um, Shia militias in Iraq mm. and in um, Syria, So, the, and, of course, the Bashar al-Assad regime in Syria. They're all mm. part of this big um, entity, and so they are getting some directive from Tehran to an extent because they're all on the same page with their um, MO.
2: You just rattled off a half dozen groups that some of our listeners and viewers maybe have never heard of. How many are there in total?
4: I'm gonna have to sit there and count. But there are, there, that, many. There are that many. Yeah, because even under the Islamic Resistance of Iraq, there's smaller Shia militias, mm-hmm. and so there, there's at least a half a dozen there, at least.
2: You mentioned the Assad regime. To what extent do they play into this?
4: Well, the Assad regime, um, of course, um, they they didn't have an exact role here, but um, the what's important to note is that. Um, our forces or troops are in Syria because of the fight against ISIS. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of push from these players that the U.S. withdraw its forces. And I think that would be seen as a win. But um, my sense is that the Biden administration will probably double down on U.S. troops in the region, um, even though there's been push for, obviously, um, for them to leave.
2: You're hearing battle plans where we started our conversation here if this is in fact the course that we take and i guess this could take days or weeks but going after iranian personnel and facilities inside iraq and syria as opposed to iran itself what's the response to our retaliation
4: um well this is a shadow war it's been a shadow war for 45 years Mm -hmm. um this it
2: stay that way
4: um really it really depends i think the fact that we've Openly and obviously decided we weren't going to actually go in and attack Iran on Iranian soil, whether it be its nuclear program, mm-hmm. its defense facilities or the IRGC itself. I think that's telling that it won't escalate for the time being. But I think it's always worth noting that miscalculations happen and there's sure. always room for escalation, especially um, in the context of the regional tension since October 7th.
2: You mentioned the nuclear program. Uh- how likely it might be a cyber attack or something that would be non traditional. We've seen this happen before.
4: Yes, actually, um, I thought in my initial assessment among, um, attacking, um, Iran-Bakshia militias in Iraq and Syria and the IRGC itself, that we would actually see cyber attacks potentially in additional U S sanctions on IRGC affiliated entities. So So to what
2: extent could we set them back with a cyber attack? Wouldn't that be, uh, actually much more costly for, the Iranians than going after proxies in other countries?
4: It it, it can. It will delay their nuclear program. um, But not just cyber attacks but actual um, uh, other instances we saw um, allegedly Mossad being behind some sabotage attempts over the years that have slowed down Iran's nuclear program. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately what it also did was push it more underground so that meant it would be harder to actually penetrate if there were um, an attack on Iranian facilities.
2: We're talking with Holly Daggers of the Atlantic Council about what might come next here, as we heard from the Secretary of Defense a bit earlier today, a multi tiered strike, it could start according to our national security team, as soon as tonight. We're told this is not going to be shock and awe that you're going to read about some strikes, maybe you'll see grainy video from uh, from a surveillance drone. Is that what you expect? Or, or do we want to shake up these players?
4: That's a great question. I, I think that they want to send a harder response than usual because we have a history of already doing such actions in the region That's against right. uh, in Iraq and Syria. So I think they want to send a wider message this time around. But will it deter Iranian proxies in the region? I would say no.
2: So this tit for tat continues. Then, do you worry about any domestic terrorism or, or kind of ancillary damage that could come from this
4: in the United States? Yeah. Um, no, I don't. I don't think that this would. Um, Trickle back to the United States. I think it will just stay in the region. A
2: direct attack on Iran would be a different story, wouldn't it?
4: Um, that, that I can say that would be a much more complicated story. How
2: about that? I bet you're pretty busy right now, and I appreciate you coming in to spend some time with us and share insights uh, from the Atlantic Council's Middle East programs. Senior fellow Holly Dagris, great to see you. Uh, stay in touch with us here on Bloomberg because this is a story that we're going to keep a close bead on here throughout the day and, of course, the weeks ahead. It's not going to end anytime soon as we. Try to assemble the pieces here on a story that brings us halfway around the world. With news today from the Pentagon, our thanks again to Nick Wadhams. Coming up next, we're going to turn to the campaign trail and insights from Mohammed Yunus, the editor-in-chief at Gallup. He's with us in studio.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: Thanks for being with us here on Bloomberg Balance of Power on the radio, on the satellite, and on YouTube. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington with new numbers on the campaign trail today. We'll start with South Carolina, only because we've been waiting weeks since the 5th of January for a new reading on this. That was the Emerson poll today. Washington Post, Monmouth University finds not good news for Nikki Haley. The numbers have barely budged, and this sample was taken after Iowa and New Hampshire. Nikki Haley 32% in her home state, Donald Trump 58% at home, which she calls sweet home South Carolina. With three weeks to go here, a pocket full of money, but no real path, according to most of the experts that we're talking with. It's a big question about what happens if she cannot win her home state. Donald Trump leading among women, among men, and among all age groups in this poll. More where this came from on the other side of the campaign. Of course, Joe Biden is running for re-election here with a real problem when it comes to the economy connecting the dots, although we have seen some improvement here. But my goodness, third year job approval average looks second worst, according to new numbers. Uh, from Gallup and I'm glad to say we're joined by Gallup's editor-in-chief Mohammed Yunus with us at the table here it's great to see you Mohammed. thanks for coming over always great to be here Um, this is this is just not good for Joe Biden as he's looking at now immigration top the economy in terms of uh, most urgent issues for voters yeah. he's losing on both absolutely and
5: um you know i'll start let's start with the economy um you know i love to say the economy in presidential election choices for the american public it's not just king it's king queen and bishop hmm. the economy is everything yeah when you look back historically in some all of the modern era presidents how people felt about the economy in addition to approval ratings were the most important thing not only in how they voted, but also in what they said they cared about mm-hmm. when they came to vote. So right now, that's actually a relatively positive point for President Biden. In our Economic Competence Index, we ask monthly how Americans feel about the economy today and how it's doing into the future. Mm-hmm. It's been the second um, consecutive month of improvement for him. So it's still negative 26 out and he's of got time. And he's got time. And of course, as you all know here at Bloomberg, um, the economy can really change from sure. period to period. A big part of President Trump's story was um, how COVID wiped out the economy. Yeah. And it became very, very uh, much a different pathway to him seeking reelection. In January of 2022, he had a 50% uh, approval rating. It was He was doing really well because people
2: felt really good about the economy despite the politics you look at 39.8% job approval you're referring to history that teaches us uh, that in a re-election cycle we're underwater How much time does he have to pull this above 50%? Is that where he needs to be to keep his job? And and let me just correct. President Trump was not at 50% approval. He was at 50%
5: of people that said he should be reelected. Got it. Yeah. So at that point in his presidency, he was doing really well. Uh President Biden today, 38% of Americans say he should be reelected. We looked at his three-year average. Um, his approval on the three-year average is 39.8. Mm-hmm. He's behind every single president except Jimmy Carter at wow. this point in their presidency. So just to give you a sense of how far behind he is. That being said, a lot of those presidents led in times that were far less partisan than today. Okay. And it's really hard for either a Republican or a Democrat to get people from the other side. Uh, to approve of the job they're doing. And this dates back to President Obama. It's not a Trump-era
2: dynamic. Well, talk to me more about that, because I don't know how you do your job anymore. When people are having fun, trying to mislead pollsters, when samples are being challenged by cell phones, no landlines anymore. We don't always know who we're talking to, it seems, depending on the poll. And I'll let you speak for Gallup. But this job's not getting easier as we go forward. It's
5: absolutely not. Uh, But one of the things that is actually amazing and hasn't changed is that with a really good RDD national sample, Uh you get a really accurate measure of how the country is feeling. We were talking a little bit about state polls a second ago. and It's important to understand that with a state poll, it's far more challenging to really get a representative sample. Um, The other thing I think, Joe, just as your listeners and viewers, start consuming more political news about the election. Mm -hmm. The notion of aggregating polls is really useful and fun to deal with. It's very useful in the finance world, of course, with indices. Indices. It's not, it's not a great or accurate way to assess where the public is on an issue. Uh, because a lot of those polls are gathered with different methodologies. Online polls are great for certain purposes. Mm. They've proven to not be so great for national yes, um, right. assessments of the political uh, t- testing waters. Our methodologists have worked you know, year in and year out to really test these tools. Because uh-huh. essentially all of these methods are really tools and they're very useful, but it's about what's the right tool to fix or you know the right squeaky wheel yeah and with national politics it's about having a really good national phone poll
2: how many people do you need to call to get a single valid response what's that ratio like? that's a great question so our polls tend to run around about
5: a thousand respondents okay sure the hard part is only about six to seven percent of people actually complete the poll so okay. you need to call far more people Fascinatingly, though, with the proper statistical methods and weighting Mm -hmm. and all of that, you're able to actually get a very accurate sample or read on the public, even with that low level of a response rate. The Mm -hmm. other, I think, misnomer is that that response rate continues to drop dramatically. Actually, it's held pretty flat now for a long time. No kidding. Um, so we have a series of ways that we actually, you know, test our own accuracy. Uh, we stopped forecasting elections back in Romney-Obama, hmm. but we absolutely test to see how people would have responded to that question and what the actual popular vote turnout is. And We do that every election, and, and it's been remarkable. Um, how accurate it is. And it's no secret if you are a member of the of APOR, kind of the Association of Public Opinion Researchers in the U.S., a lot of this is debated, um, mm-hmm. uh, written about uh, in peer-reviewed journals. So for those of us in this space, it, it always, I think, baffles us to note how The public is having a conversation about the polls. You can't trust the polls. How about that? Yeah. It depends on the poll. It really does depend on the poll. Well,
2: it certainly does. And we really do try to talk about methodology when we report these numbers. Uh, But this is a fascinating peek behind the curtain with the editor-in-chief here at Gallup. We're in a primary season. We saw in Iowa and New Hampshire that immigration was far and beyond the number one issue for Republican voters. What's that going to look like when we get to the general
5: it's only going to grow. Immigration is the biggest... So it's
2: not just the economy is stupid for the balance of this campaign.
5: It's not. So it's it's a matter of... So life is multidimensional, right? Yeah. And so is voting. So the way we ask a question is, what is the number one issue that's the most important for you? Mm-hmm. That's always the economy. It always pans out. But we also ask a lot of other questions. One of the questions we ask every month is, what's the most important problem facing America? Mm-hmm. You could say... Uh, your favorite serial name Mm. or you could mention a policy issue. The number one issue for Republicans is immigration. Um, I think it's one of the most underreported stories uh, in our times today. Yeah. And it's not just Republicans. You know, a considerable, like 12 plus percent of people at the national level, I saying immigration. Mm-hmm. As the situation at the border worsens, which I think from your reporting and others, it seems like it, it continues to do that. Yeah. Um, it is absolutely going to be a major topic, particularly among the Republican Party. It also, if you'll permit me, Please. perfectly ties into the most important issue for Republicans generally. And we, f- we did a 30 year analysis of what are the issues that where there's the most partisan divide on in America. The yep. number one issue is the power of big government. Well, and you can see how the issue of controlling the border ties right, right into, into that concept philosophically.
2: So many controversies in Washington right now really do. Uh, we've got a deal, we're told, on the verge of a deal in the Senate that's dead on arrival in the House. Donald Trump says no deal. It looks like this could be crashing into the rocks here. What does that do to congressional approval ratings? Didn't you? look at this not that long ago. What are they at yes. 12%? Or yeah. I mean, this is desperate. Absolutely.
5: Absolutely. Uh, a, a good month for congressional approval ratings is for it to not be in the single digits, <laughs> wow. it, which is, it's funny, but it's also kind of scary it's, and it, sad. It really is. That being said, that being said, um, so will you reelect Joe Biden? Uh-huh. We also ask, will you reelect, do you think that most members of Congress should be reelected? In that same poll, true to form, this is just a few more, a few days ago, yep. 24% of Americans say that most members of Congress should be reelected. <laughs> But, and a really important dimension to this is, when you ask them about their member of It's Congress, overwhelming, right? It's like a nearly six in 10 That's say incredible. they should be real Just don't
2: mess with my guy. Exactly. And that goes for the economy as well, we've seen in some polling, right? Where people are feeling better about their local economy, the question is when you connect the dots there on a national level. Yes, and the big issue there is inflation. Mm. So
5: even though that ECI number has improved, what we also found in the same poll, sixty-three percent of Americans are still saying that price increases are causing them financial hardship. That actually has now plateaued uh, since this whole inflation thing began. What was it, two years ago now? Mm. Um so that hasn't improved. You know, mm-hmm. you report a lot on the, the, the Federal Reserve and the and sure. the real interest rate. We talk inflation uh, every day on politics show. Of course, absolutely. I've learned most of what I know from your report. <laughs> But from the public's perspective, it's still just as bad. It hasn't improved at all. Because they're
2: looking at prices from before COVID. And we're talking about just slowing the rate of inflation, not actually turning the clock back. And you wonder if that ends up happening in the next year. You're going to be walking in here with much better numbers, I can only assume for Joe Biden. But we'll find out together uh, with Mohammed Yunus. Love talking to you. Thanks for coming in.
0: The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube.
2: Live from the nation's capital, Kaylee Lyons is off today as we... Dissect news from the Pentagon in a late scheduled news conference happened late this morning with not a lot of notice Lloyd Austin in front of reporters standing for the first time since his visit to Walter Reed. Of course, he had an extended hospital stay following complications that were tied to prostate cancer surgery. He did apologize for that. He apologized to the president and to the American people for the lack of communication surrounding his stay. But he also spoke to what was anticipated to be an announcement. It wasn't really so much of retaliatory strikes following the deadly attack on U.S. forces over the weekend in Jordan. He did promise multi-tiered strikes, and we've heard this line before from the Pentagon and from John Kirby at the White House at the time of our choosing. But there is reporting more deliberately from CBS News today that plans have in fact been approved. For a series of strikes over a number of days against targets, i.e. multi-tiered, as the jargon indicates, they would include Iranian personnel and facilities inside Iraq and Syria, not to be confused with Iran itself. And that's where we start our conversation with Michael Allen, managing director, partner, Beacon Global Strategies, has had a long career in national security, including uh, time in the national security apparatus in the White House, 2007 through 2009. It's great to see you, Michael. Thanks for being here. Thank you for Are having Are we going to see military action tonight?
6: I think it's tonight or tomorrow night. As I understand it, it's weather dependent. But mm-hmm. I think it's time for the United States to go ahead and take the strikes. The clock is ticking. They took a hit at us, of course, over the weekend. And I think it's part of reestablishing deterrence against Iran that we're able to swiftly try, anyway, to put them back in their place. I'm a little worried that we've telegraphed the punch so much that a lot of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard figures have gone back home by now. What do
2: you make of that? Was this leaked on purpose? Is there some telegraphing going on here, or is the Pentagon talking in a way that it shouldn't be? I think they
6: are telegraphing. They did it against the Houthi strike. They've done it previously. I think in their minds, they Mm. believe it's a way to de-escalate the crisis but isn't that something but to me what they need to be doing is trying to reestablish deterrence which would say let's do something swiftly mm-hmm. and overwhelming not to cause a war but to cause a ca- change in the calculus of the Iranian leaders to where they say to themselves you know what the united states isn't messing around anymore if i'm on the receiving end from european powers or whomever of a warning hey a shot's coming we don't want to hit your people maybe mm-hmm. just your equipment mm-hmm. i'm thinking to myself okay i'll batten down the hatches tonight but Right back at you tomorrow.
2: So, why not strike Iran directly? Why not sink the Iranian Navy? To yes. Make a
6: point? So, I think that would be a disproportionate response. I'm okay. sort of in favor of a disproportionate response to reestablish deterrence, yeah. maybe not inside of Iran proper. Maybe we save that. For a later.
2: Because that would
6: draw other disproportionate. I think it would be incredibly escalatory if we hit inside of Iran, especially when we've got so much else going. I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. not unalterably opposed to it. I would want to understand what the targets were. Mm -hmm. And perhaps if they were IRGC Mm -hmm. intelligence facilities, it would remind me more of President Reagan hitting the intelligence services in Libya, and I would get more comfortable with it. But yeah, they need to lean forward a little bit. I think a thesis of the administration is overcaution. They're overcautious in what arms they give to the Ukrainians, and they're being too overcautious when we talk about the Iranians.
2: So with what we know, if it is in fact striking targets within Iraq and Syria, are these airstrikes? Are they cruise missiles? What would be uh, the menu of options here the Pentagon's looking at?
6: I think all of the above. Yeah. Certainly a few cruise missiles, but I think they will definitely put some F-16s and other munitions type in Being there.
2: launched from allies the Air- in the Middle East.
6: Uh, we have from plenty Jordan. of bases, plenty of places over there. Cutter. I think we have cutter. We've got even places in the UAE. And there- would
2: we be then drawing them into this?
6: I think we would have to get their permission in order to take off from those bases and make sure they're okay with it. I think they would be okay with it. But speaking of permission, I mean, it's if we hit inside Iraq, yeah. generally we're supposed to at least talk to the Iraqi government about it. I don't think we did a few weeks ago which is part of the reason why the Iraqi government wants us to move out or we're beginning discussions on how to move out the troops. But that has a big, that'll be an interesting story tonight. Did we hit inside of Iraq
2: and did we get permission or did we just do it? With that said, talk to me about this place, Tower 22. It's in a critical location, essentially the intersection of all three countries, Iraq and Syria uh, and Iran. that wasn't by accident That's what right. happened there, was it? It wasn't by accident. I think
6: they thought that this would be a less protected facility because we, the United States, probably saw Jordan as a safer place to be, mm. certainly compared to Syria, which is just generally lawless and dangerous. But, you know, this is where I wish the president, um, not as a Republican or a Democrat, but would I reiterate, what is the national interest? Why do we have these troops in Syria in the first place? And the reason is it's ISIS and the rise of terrorism. Mm -hmm. We don't want them to come back and be able to reestablish such a power to be able to hit us back in the United States again. Tower 23 was there to help support that mission inside of Syria. So I hope tonight, if the president addresses the nation, Around the time that the strikes are launched, he'll make it clear to everybody that hey, this is part of a U.S. counterterrorism mission. We aren't there just for fun.
2: Yes, uh, so this should be coupled with a presidential address, in your view. I think so. Are definitely you hearing that would happen, or you I just think it not, should happen?
6: I, I think it should happen. Does I don't use a- the
2: Oval Office as, as a venue very often. Does this justify it?
6: I think it does. I think this is a significant escalation by Iran when they've killed three soldiers. I think he has to lay out our strategy again, not, you know, I worked for President Bush, but I think even Democrats appreciated it in the second term when he would go out and explain the Iraq policy, even if they didn't agree with it. You have a duty to tell the American people, and I hope Biden does that tonight.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. He's going to be flying around the country here a little bit, but he would be back in time to address the American people. And it it does seem like it would be a time to follow up on his address about Ukraine and Israel.
4: That's right. It's
2: another dangerous world speech for this president. We
6: have a lot going on. I know we're all eager to, you know, as we say, pivot to China because they are the big threat Mm -hmm. over the next generation. Mm -hmm. But we keep getting pulled back in, to use the phrase from the godfather, into the Middle East and, of course, into Europe. World wars start in Europe, which is why we need to do a better job and, and get over our misgivings about funding the Ukrainians. But we also need to be more serious about trying to put Iran in a box. We don't have doesn't have to mean war, mm-hmm. but they need to know that we have a backbone here so that they'll slow down on their nuclear program
2: and slow down on their proxy terrorist warfare in the region. The Islamic resistance in Iraq is said to be responsible for the attack in Jordan. Uh, There are at least a half dozen proxy groups we're talking about here. Uh, You've suggested that we need to do something to make a point. Can you make a point by going after the legs of the octopus here and not the head?
6: I don't think so. So I think among the strikes tonight, I'm fine with all these proxies, and I do believe that we need to, as some people unfortunately call it, mow the grass a little bit, degrade their capabilities. But I think you've got to have an eye in front of one of these strikes. And Hmm. for me, that's the IRGC. That is the terrorist sponsor. They're the ones that deal externally from Iran and sponsor Hamas, Hmm. Hezbollah, the Houthi, and of course all of these Popular mobilization fronts that are in Iraq. And those are the people we need to go after, and they need to understand that the United States is can hit them and that we're serious about doing it.
2: And then the next day, the Houthis
6: attack another ship. We have to keep staying in the fight there. There, I'm more comfortable with a longer term campaign that just degrades equipment and. In Yemen. In Yemen, yep. sorry, yes, yep. absolutely. In Yemen, because I do believe that if we don't try to keep the international waterways open, no one else is. Mm-hmm. And even if we may not have a direct a ship that's going directly, because they're going up the Suez Canal, I think nonetheless that's the role of the United States for now.
2: All the while, uh, we've got a hot war in Gaza. Yeah. Uh, a prime minister doesn't seem to want to take advice from the United States right now. They've begun. They've at least acknowledged now that they've begun flooding the tunnels beneath Gaza, Hamas's tunnels with seawater, and we're getting an eye roll here on talk of a peace deal. You made the point we're spinning a lot of plates right now. The Secretary of State said this is a dangerous moment for the Middle East. Are we focused enough on what's actually happening inside Israel and Gaza while we try to deal with the rest of the region? I wish we would give a little
6: bit more time to the Israelis to finish the job in Gaza. I understand that things are controversial. I understand there's been an unfortunate civilian loss of life. Yeah. But they've just gone through their equivalent of 9-11. We would not have listened to people telling us that we can't go after al-Qaeda in Afghanistan or wherever the case may be. I think, honestly, they need another month or so before they shift over to a over-the-horizon counterterrorism special op- sure. raid type yeah. of situation. You're right. BB is not listening to Joe Biden, but I think Joe Biden also needs to understand a little bit where they are.
2: Uh, you served as Majority Staff Director of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. You've been on both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue. The president's asking for help, the supplemental budget request for Israel, for Ukraine, for Taiwan. It's been bogged down into a border debate. Is that how this ends, or will there be a new approach from the Lindsey Grahams of the world and some of the others to get a standalone funding bill for Ukraine as well as Israel
6: I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that's what Senator McConnell has been signaling for about it a week seems like which is it. that yeah it was the border language that was going to pull Ukraine funding across the goal line mm-hmm. now I think it's a better chance that the border language would delay the Ukraine funding if I'm the leader in the Senate Schumer and McConnell I just go ahead and try and throw it over to the House.
4: Send the supplemental. In,
6: yeah, and get, let get pressure them on the build. There's some orfo- unforeseeable event that I can't come up with right now uh-huh. that might happen in a month or two. Maybe Russia does something dramatic. Maybe pressure increases, but then the House of Representatives then feels the pressure to go ahead and let it through. Mm-hmm. I would put the pressure on them and go ahead and pass it. It needs to get out of the Senate. Something big needs to happen. We've let it sit there too long, and that's why everything has uh, you know, been delayed.
2: You've spent a career in national security. Does it make you nervous when focus is trained so heavily on one part of the world, knowing that a Vladimir Putin or someone else, a Kim Jong-un, could really take advantage of a moment like this? It does.
6: You know, Kim Jong-un, it's good that you mentioned North Korea. Almost no one talks about it. He has gotten more aggressive of late. He sort of changed the defense doctrine. That he, how he looks at the world, not so much, hey, I'm just going to try to get along peacefully with South Korea, but I want to reunite the peninsula. It's not that he's going to do it, but he's building capabilities everywhere. And honestly, we here in Washington don't have a great idea or a great new policy to roll out how to deal with them. It needs to be managed, maybe more sanctions, maybe more deterrence. Mm -hmm. But. There are problems everywhere, and we have got a lot that we need to follow and do well on and execute so that our national interests are protected.
2: With the Ukraine, that's running out of money. Even if we get this together, maybe to your point, there is uh, a new effort and a a standalone piece of legislation that funds our allies in Kiev. Vladimir Putin has got to be seeing an opportunity right now. What's going to happen next? What concerns you the most?
6: What concerns me the most is that Vladimir Putin is going to get this entire year to reconstitute his military. We've already seen plenty of articles about how they've been able to stay afloat through more manpower that they've basically kidnapped off the streets and shipped over to Ukraine. But also their capability, their defense manufacturing is starting to go back up again. So I think we're giving Putin a whole year if we don't pass anything to let him Rebuild and retrench and reestablish his force so that he might be able to move westward again Mm -hmm. next year. So that's why we, another reason why we need to get this Ukrainian funding done as soon as possible.
2: Are you surprised that the White House, with the help of Mitch McConnell, has not succeeded in making the argument, the national security argument for the United States when we talk about Ukraine? You hear not another dollar for Ukraine. Our borders before their borders is kind of the refrain from the Freedom Caucus types. Despite deliberate messaging, classified briefings, they don't seem to be breaking through.
6: I am surprised because I think we're losing our way. I don't know if it's populism. I don't know what it is. But we all know here in the age of geopolitical competition that Russia is our number two adversary. And if anybody in the national security community had been approached three years ago and said, if you want to pay 2.5% of your annual defense budget and we will degrade the Russian army by a year, or two, or more and mm-hmm. force them to bring out tanks that were from World War II, would you take that deal? You'd Nobody say, would have They would be like, I don't even know why you're asking me such a yeah. ridiculous question. But of course we should do that, not because we have just some – ancient beef with the Russians and the old Soviet Union, but because it's in our national interest. And I wish the president would step forward and articulate Hmm. national interest reasons why we need to stand tall.
2: Michael Allen, great conversation. Thank you for being with us. A voice of experience when it comes to national security that we wanted to bring to you here on Bloomberg. Thanks for joining today and stay in touch. Thanks for listening to the Balance of Power podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at noontime Eastern at Bloomberg.com.